Welcome, everybody, to episode 38 of the Global Gamers Podcast. And as promised from our West Kingdom retrospective last week, we are following up with a review of our newest um, Garfield games. Uh, Garfield. I, I was, yeah. was kind of trying to find a way to express the enthusiasm about this review. Our newest... I don't want to say obsession. That seems well, strong, well, especially because we haven't had the time to be obsessed with it in practice. But well, um, I think, I th- yeah, we're talking about scholars of the South Tigris. In case you haven't picked yes. up on that. Well, I, I think one thing that's very fun about this is it's one of the few reviews we're doing this year that like goes all the way back to our most anticipated games of the year episode. That was one of the first episodes we did, mm-hmm. and. uh Yes, excited to uh, get into it and to speaking speaking of that most anticipated uh-huh. list this weekend. I finally completed my checklist of my five selections from yeah. that list because I used a gift card that a friend gave me for my birthday last month to pick up the expansions for both cascadia and lost ruins of arnak so that is the cascadia landmarks expansion and the missing expedition for lost ruins it's of not arnak. missing from your so, game shelf <laughs> good one <laughs> no but it, it feels cool to just yeah. kind of you know have those things that i knew um i wanted rounded out uh to be on the shelf now yeah and to feel and especially because scholars also came you know just about two weeks ago it kind of it feels like my collection has hit this point where these kind of incomplete things are finally just checked off. The yeah, list. definitely. It's a, it's, it's definitely yeah. a good, good feeling for the, the completionists in the room, which to one degree or another, I think applies to both of us. I think I'm pretty guilty of yeah, it I definitely in terms am. of buying expansions. And I mean, yeah, not to get too much into that, but so, um, let's get into scholars of the South yes. Tigris part of our garfield completionism yeah exactly and um yeah do you want to kick us off with theme and whatnot yeah um i would just caveat a little bit on the front end by saying that obviously this is a brand uh brand new release so we haven't had that much time to play it a ton of times because you know we've only had it for maybe two weeks it's a very involved and lengthy heavy game. Involved, lengthy, yeah. And we've also just had our own other things going on. So um, this is, but I do feel pretty comfortable giving my thoughts on it after a first yeah, play. So this is, yeah, like a yeah one of our first <clears throat> impressions review episodes. Yes, but at the same time, it kind of doesn't feel like one because so much of that Garfield DNA is familiar at this yeah. point. Yeah, there's definitely some that I don't think that my overlap. opinion is going to swing too radically on it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Scholars of the South Tigris, which if you backed the Kickstarter campaign, you should have received or should be receiving very soon. And it should be coming to retail within the next few weeks. This is the second game, the second release of the South Tigris trilogy by garfield games designed by shem phillips and sj mcdonald with art by the miko as usual so scholars of the south tigris much like its predecessor um at least in release order 
uh, Wayfarers of the South Tigris is set in the medieval Middle East. So around the 10th century, 9th century. And once again, Baghdad is the center of this universe of games. And in this title, so in Wayfarers, the theme was that you're venturing out to um, map the known universe. Um, that would be, you know, the, the astronomy with the planets and the stars and the comets measuring the circumference of the earth by venturing out, which is actually something that, you know, the Abbasids did back in the yeah. day. But something else that they did was that, and this is uh, my history nerd coming in, and I just actually, if anyone's interested in taking a deep dive into some of this, I just read a book um, called The Map of Knowledge by Violet Muller that is about... Um, the spread and the survival of ancient Greek and Roman knowledge. So the sciences, medicine, astronomy, philosophy after the fall of Rome and how, you know, it largely survived in the Arab world um, until it made its way back to Europe and kind of kickstarted the Renaissance. And part of that history, and there's a chapter on this in that book, if you're interested, is that Baghdad um, during the Abbasid Caliphate was the center of this. So much like the Library of Alexandria before it, the caliphs in Baghdad created this, most historians think it was a physical place, we don't know for sure, called the House of Wisdom, where scholars from all over the world would gather and translate and, and collect, basically in a giant library, the wealth of of known human knowledge. Mm-hmm. So they would send people out or they would trade for old manuscripts and books. Um, well, I guess not really books as we would know them. <laughs> um, you know, scrolls, etc. Yeah. from all over the world, as far as China. Um, and they would bring all these things back in different languages, Chinese, Hebrew, Greek, Persian, Sanskrit. Um, and bring them all back to Baghdad and then have these translators and um you know and scholars translate and re recopy you know transcribe these texts into Arabic and save them in the house of wisdom for posterity yeah. so that is the thematic backdrop for what you're doing in scholars of the south tigris uh so the whole game really is kind of structured around um, almost like a conveyor belt or an assembly line of following a scroll or several scrolls across the game from the point of collection by traveling around the map through the translation process and ultimately, um, you know, storing it in the house of wisdom when it's complete. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. There, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. Um, yeah. I, I love the, the theme of this trilogy, but I think of the three, this one is the one that I think is the coolest. It's, it's definitely like gets like breaking the scale in terms of like creativity and like a theme have never really seen a board game explore before. Mm-hmm. And we, t- we touched on this last week in our West Kingdom retrospective when we talked about which of those games we thought implemented yeah. its theme best. And I would say that both of the South Tigris games so far have been way more successful at that. And I think that scholars um, continues that tradition. Really? I think scholars does it best. It does it very, very well. No doubt. 
Yeah. Yeah. What, was so, there anything else you I'm gonna hand it over? Oh yeah, I was gonna say. No, I was gonna say I was ah. gonna hand it over to you to get into the rule. Well, actually, you know what we can do? We can do our usual um uh just the last little BGG overview. So just to give right. a sense. Um this game plays one to four players. <laughs> this is a joke. It says sixty to ninety minutes, it but it's um, not. <laughs> no, I I think games should just stop lying about that at this point i think it's more marketing strategy than anything else because they don't want to scare people away and it has a complexity rating of 3.98 out of five um and just for comparison very quickly that i believe that i think that is definitely the most complex game that I own or maybe even that I have played. So I'm trying to pull up one of the, um, I just pulled up Wayfarers. One of the other examples. Wayfarers was three. Yeah. So I remember we said, okay. And then we said Paladins was the heaviest of the West kingdom games on BGG with a 3.72. So scholars is according to basically everyone, even a good little bit above those. So this is definitely not the easiest or most accessible Garfield title to uh, you know introduce new players yeah. to. Yeah, and we can get into that with with the rules explanation. Right. Gameplay. I will caveat that by saying I think a lot of that complexity is built into one or two like brain pretzel inducing mechanisms. But then once you've wrapped your head around that, the rest of it is while lengthy, fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. Well, one one thing I would say is, you know, we talked last week about how um, sometimes the the teaching kind of falls on me in yeah. our group, <laughs> and as 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 the teacher, I will say that this game is a lot easier to teach than some of the others. The rule book is quite particularly good. like, yeah, it's way easier to teach than than Viscounts and Wayfarers. And yeah, I think that the some of my criticisms of Wayfarers with um, the symbols being a little bit confusing or vague, and then Viscount, just the learning curve being very high, at least in our experience, I didn't have that problem with this. And I think that's that's because like I think the graphic design, while all these games do a really good job, this one kind of even took it up a notch yeah. with the presentation and the organization of the board. And the rule book is so, so, so good. So the way that things are broken down into numbered bullet points yeah. that like also show you where things are on the board is is so helpful. So huge props to them for that. Yeah. Yeah. And and in, yeah. in that spirit, we're going to, because this is such a complex game, just boil this overview down to a few key themes. One is yeah, there's there's no way to teach right, this game over right. a podcast. So what we're going to do is give a little overview of the object of the game, give a little overview of the board, give a little overview of the thing, the different action options you have on your turn, and then a little bit on scoring. And then we'll take right. it from there and get into the broader discussion. Um, but just to kick things off, as Ed said, you know, the object of this game draws very heavily from the themes that he was talking about, where 
you're basically being scored in victory points in who does the best job of preserving knowledge for posterity in the form of translated scrolls and in terms of domain-specific knowledge in a few key like science and like disciplines, other disciplines. And so um, just to give an overview of the board that you're working with, that will kind of dovetail in nicely with the different actions you have, just because you're basically using different actions in different parts of the board, so to speak. And so looking at the game board, you've got on the left-hand side, you have uh, an area where the manuscripts that you're going to be translated are entering gameplay. And basically, there's a little map there. And when you're traveling around there, one of the things that you're able to do is basically collect a manuscript and bring it to Baghdad for translation. So that's one key component of the board. Another key component of the board is the the three guilds. There's a purple, an orange, and a green guild. And these are uh, guilds in Baghdad. And these are going to be the places where you are actually doing the translation of those manuscripts after they have been gathered. In the middle of... Yeah, so the, the spots in the guilds are the actual House of Wisdom. Yes, the House of Wisdom itself, yeah. where the translation's happening. That's right. Thanks for clarifying. Um, in between those two you have what basically amounts to a tech tree and you are, you know, basically trying to amass knowledge in six different domains. And then as you move up those tracks, you acquire a combination of one-time rewards and an ever-increasing list of rewards that you get every time you rest to reset another round of actions by getting you know collecting resources like cleaning up your hand and various other actions for as a sort of like periodic in-game reset and then the other big component of the board is the translators that you're going to be using and so just as in many other Garfield games with the townsfolk cards, you have a series of translators at the top of the board where they have different abilities that can come into play after you've used them. But the main thing to keep in mind here is that they all speak different languages. And this will come to be important because when you're translating manuscripts from their given language into Arabic, you need to basically follow particular paths in order to do that. Um, you've got like certain languages that are closer to Arabic, other languages that are further away that you sometimes have to translate through two or three other languages before you get to Arabic. And that I love that that integrates so well thematically because basically if you if you have any kind of comprehension of geography you will be able to 
even without looking at the board or the rule book or any kind of reference, you would be able to remember generally how difficult it's going to be to translate yeah. something. So in your head, you're like, okay, Chinese is always going to be a difficult translation, yeah. whereas, you know, Persian is right next yeah. door. That kind yeah, of thing. it makes a yeah. lot of sense. Exactly. Um, then at the bottom of the board, you have different translation rooms. And these are going to be the little little alcoves, basically, where you're putting translator cards once they've been hired to come into play as a translator that can uh, be paid to do a particular translation job. And then the last component of the game board is... In the upper right-hand corner, you have four spots for the Caliph cards. And these are cards that represent the like the leaders of the Caliphate in Baghdad. And basically, that's just to keep track of how far into the game you are. Because there's no set uh, like score attainment or anything else th like that that triggers endgame. The endgame is triggered when the fourth of those cards comes up. And that's coming up from the list of scroll cards that are entering play gradually throughout the game. So once you get the last of those Caliph cards, um, you know, you can get a couple of in-game bonuses if you uh, have influence in one of the three guilds. But then after that, you finish that round, everyone else has one more turn, and then the game is over. Yeah, that bit is probably most similar to Viscounts. Yeah in terms of how the game is paced by depleting a deck. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's really good to be able to, re to like reference all these games now. Yes, it is. Um, yeah. And I think you just did a really good job distilling the layout of the board. I think the other helpful thing with the rules would just be to Maybe just go through what the options are for a yeah. turn. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna go get into that and next. Just the kind different of, actions, yeah. Like how, like, and, and like which which kinds of actions maybe will be more appealing at different phases across yep. the game. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy to get into that now. Um. So one thing that is not complicated in this game is your choice of actions. So if you're thinking paladins of the West Kingdom where you had, you know, 12 to 12 or so different actions you can choose from. That's not this game. This game, there are four. And those are the only four actions you're choosing at any point in the game. So let's go over those real quick. The first of those actions is recruit. And this is where you are acquiring translators to put them in play for the game. And when you... Recruit a translator in, as in many of Garfield games, you can do this in one of two ways. You can discard the card in question and basically just get a one-time bonus that's printed on the right upper right corner. Uh, or you can hire them and basically place them in one of the empty translation rooms at the bottom of the board. And when you're doing that, you pay a certain cost in coin and then you acquire some one-time benefit depending on which room you put them in. And so this is the function of this in the game is basically giving you available translators that can get you from language A to language B or sometimes from a, language A to language C via language B. 
Um, and so there are, there are, I believe, 10 different slots on the board. Let me just confirm that. One, two, three, four, five. Yes, 10 different spots where you can put translators. And so that's action number one. Action number two is traveling. And when you're traveling, this is pulling into play the acquisition of the manuscripts that you're going to be translating to get the major like a good chunk of your points. And so for the travel action, you will move around that mini map on the board that allows you to either acquire a manuscript and move it into the House of Wisdom to be translated. Or if you're not in a position where you want to be moving a manuscript to the House of Wisdom, there are basically alternating spaces on here. Half of the spaces are to acquire manuscripts, and the other half provide other like one-time resource gathering benefits to help you get coin, help you get to get gold, basically giving you the other, the other give you workers. They basically give you the other things that you need in order to power your game. So those are the first two actions, recruit, route, and, tr and travel. The third action is research. And as I mentioned in the middle of the board, you have this basic tech tree uh, with six different domains of knowledge. Uh, there's one for geometry. There's one for biology. There's one for physics. Um, and basically, this research function lets you, it gives you a, a few different options for what you have to pay. But essentially, what you're doing is you're paying a few resources to move up this tech tree so that you gradually get better and better in-game benefits. Um, and there are one-time benefits, and there's also benefits that come into play every time you rest. And so this also plays into endgame scoring because where you end up on each of these six like tracks in this tech tree will also contribute to your endgame scoring. It's a it's a it's a bit um dwellings of Alderfail meets Ankh. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> interesting combo. That's a good yeah. way of putting it. I think that's yeah, I was thinking to maybe even mention like Scythe or some of the other Garfield tracks, but that doesn't seem as correct because those are more like you move up and down, yeah. whereas this is a permanent, as you said, like a tech tree up. Right. Um, and then the last action is to translate. And this is when you're actually translating the manuscripts. You are paying coin and paying gold bars in order to do so. Uh, basic rule of thumb is that you've got to pay every translator you have to use. Uh, for quick translations from a close language like Persian, you might just need one, but sometimes you'll need three. I think conceivably you could need, need four in some cases, but three is about as far as we went. Uh, and the idea is that the more translators you need, the more it expensive it is. and generally speaking, the more points those manuscripts are worth at the end too. And usually those manuscripts are worth a base number of points. And then 
they usually have some sort of an add-on. Some of, for some of them, it's bonus endgame scoring based on which manuscripts you translate, and for some of them, it's one-way benefit, like one-time benefits along the way. Um, so that covers the four different action options, and you might be thinking that this can expertly done. You might be thinking this sounds pretty <laughs> straightforward so far. So I've saved the most mind-bending. Does it? Does it? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> but but I still, whether or not that's true, I do uh, stick by the notion that I've saved the most complicated thing for last. And that is how you decide what actions you are able to do at different points throughout the game. Mm-hmm. And you may recall from our review episode of Wayfarers that it is a dice drafting game. And like all three of the games in this uh, South Tigris trilogy, Scholars also incorporates dice drafting, but it does so in an even more complex way than Wayfarers. And mm-hmm. how that works is you have a little bag that has dice in it and you've got some dice that are just white and then you have some dice that are either primary or secondary colors and six different colors one for each of the primary and one for each of the secondary colors coincidentally not coincidentally actually each of those six colors corresponds to one of the six tracks of knowledge on the tech tree and for example, um, astronomy is blue, philosophy is yeah, yellow. Exactly. And so what you're do one of the things you're doing at the start of your game is you are able to draw out of your bag a certain number of dice. At the start of the game, it's four dice, and then you can power that up along one of the tracks up to seven as you go along. But basically how it works is you have four dice at the beginning. Each action you take requires at least one dice. And then once you run out of dice, it's time to rest and reset and rinse, repeat, start the process over again. Now, for the for the Garfield veterans amongst us, this is the dice placement from Wayfarers meets the well, I guess this is what you're about to get to. The color matching from Paladins. Exactly. So, um, you know, you might be thinking, like, what's the purpose of having the co- different colored dice? And the purpose is that in order to complete an action in a certain part of the board, you need to have not only a high enough number from your roll on your dice, but also the correct corresponding color. So a few ways a few ways mm-hmm. that this comes into play, I won't get into the minutia of all of the different applications, but just a few that come to mind. For instance, when you're doing your research track and you're deciding which of the six tracks on the tech tree you want to upgrade, you have to have the corresponding color for that. So if you want to upgrade... If you want to go up biology, you need green. You, uh, yep. And if you want to go up astronomy, you need yellow. And if you... Oh, blue. blue. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I have it in front of me. That's how I know. I did not memorize No, that's this. good. Um, and so, yeah, the idea is you 
have to color match. If you don't have the correct color, you can't do that action. And so another time mm-hmm. this comes into play is the three secondary colors, purple and orange and green. These are the three colors of the different three different guilds in the house of wisdom. And in order to translate scrolls that reside in one of those three guilds, you also need to color match. So if there's a scroll you want to translate in the green guild, you need a green colored dice in order to do that. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, this sounds very rigid and in some ways it is, but the way that they have, for making this a little easier is that you also have workers. And this is the first time we've mentioned workers because the meeples in this game are, you know, providing an essential function, but one that's far less central to the gameplay than in some of the other Garfield games. And so basically they're almost, they're supplementary to precisely they're supplementary and complementary to the dice. So you have, you basically have workers of that are white and then you have ones for each of the three primary colors and you're able to acquire these over the course of the game through various like one-time upgrade spots but what these workers let you do is they let you change the color of your dice so for instance if you want to play an orange action but all you have is a yellow dice you can play your yellow dice and you can play a red worker with it and suddenly it's orange. And so you're basically using the workers to alter the colors of your dice to the colors required for the action you want to take. Excellent explanation. Um, One little detail that I will point out on that that I thought was incredible Mm -hmm when we were reading the rule book for the first time is that color matching plays such and mixing makes such plays such a big role in this game. And you would think that that would rule this game out for anyone who's colorblind, but they actually incorporated that into the rules as well. And with the components. So like the primary color dice have different pip colors and textures than the secondary ones. The primary dice are solid yep. The secondary are translucent. So that just that just goes to the extent of the attention to detail yeah. um, that went into this game and, and goes with what we were saying earlier about just how good the rulebook is and how good the graphic design is in making such a complicated game as easy to learn as it possibly could. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. So I think <clears throat> the last thing we have to cover is scoring and then we're done. So as we find in all these Garfield games, we have a point salad scoring system, but here are the main components of those scoring. The first one is based on the dice in your bag. Over the course of the game, you start with mostly white dice, and by the end of the game, you want as few white dice as possible and mostly colored dice. And so... Mm-hmm. The basically you're competing against all the other players to see um, if you take the number of colored dice you have, subtract the number of white dice, whose number is the biggest from that little yeah. mental arithmetic. This is this is very reminiscent of other bag building and deck building games. Yeah. So it's kind of like when you're playing a game like Quacks of Puddlenburg, 
you don't want too many of those white chips right. um or you know when you because they like you know they bloat down your bag and make it more difficult to get what you need or when you're deck building in a game like lost ruins of arnak or dominion you know in, in arnak you don't want too many of those fair cards yeah. or cards in your deck that you're not going to use and they'll minus points from you at the end and just take up space yep. same principle yep. so it'll be familiar to anyone who's played other um deck building and bag building yeah, games precisely um the second category of points is you get points victory points for retired translators under your player board and we did not get into that over earlier in the rule explanation but the basic idea is a translator retires after they've been used a certain number of times between one and three, and they've acquired the amount of gold that they needed to live out their golden years in the lap of luxury. And so yeah. you have victory points that are printed on each of those. And basically whoever hired them, as long as they, get enough gold on that piece they basically tuck them under their board um for bonus end game scoring yep um beyond that you get victory points for any of the three guilds in the house of wisdom that you control at the end of the game and very reminiscent of wayfarers yep. and also uh, it goes even beyond Wayfarers in one respect, and that is the four Caliph cards that are keeping track of pr like progression towards the end of the game. Some of those will have bonus endgame scoring that can be acquired by whoever's controlling each of those guilds when the card is triggered. Um, two more sources of points to get through. The first is uh, we mentioned that six research track tech tree you get victory points depending on how far up each of those research tracks you make it and then the last source of victory points is on the scroll cards above the player board all of the ones that you've translated over the course of the game and as we mentioned yeah. those all have a base number of victory points and some of them also have bonus scoring depending on what other uh, scrolls you've translated most of them based on there are there are a lot like the space yeah. cards and wayfarers yeah. they're mostly they're all an end game scoring in one way yeah. or another so like a lot of them are like you know how, which languages you translated from like you get an extra point yeah for like a... two points and then one extra point for each hebrew you translated. exactly exactly yeah, that kind of thing but yeah i think Ooh. that gives us a wow pretty good overview of everything it's a good good rundown um so our usual next question would be to talk about our tips or strategies for first-time players i feel a little bit strange tackling this in that usual approach well, for a game where we are basically still in that I, that honeymoon phase i think one thing we could do instead here is to um just point out a couple little wrinkles in the rules that things that, we missed. Yeah, the things first that are time. easy to miss. The yeah, first that's what time. I was thinking too. Um, because <clears throat> one of the things that it's easy to miss, I can just jump right in. Or if you have, unless mm -hmm. you have something you'd like to highlight. No, I, th I think you have a more important one than I do because I think this is one that we've talked about. So the one I wanted to mention is 
the related to the travel action, because what we found is that the first time we played, we didn't fully grasp how this worked and why it was advantageous to move particular scrolls to the house of wisdom to be translated because that's not the only way the scrolls move over every time you rest and reset your hand um one scroll migrates over to the house of wisdom if one of the three guilds is empty that way it's just a mechanism to make sure you always have at least a couple choices to translate yeah and that the game pace is moving even when you know even when people choose not exactly to voluntarily move exactly goals. but the main thing you're getting at is and this is why we skipped is because it's very expensive to choose to move scrolls it over is. and we didn't quite understand what the incentive was for doing exactly that. so so what was the full incentive explain it to me again. well the full incentive was that you get you get um certain one-time bonus based on which space in the house of wisdom you put it so usually you get some gold perhaps the ability to place some influence in one of the guilds um but the first time we played we thought that was the extent of what you got but what we found reading the rule book a little closer is that you also get to move up the tech tree for the research track that corresponds to that manuscript. Um, We knew that you... That's a huge difference. A huge difference. Now, because usually you'd have to pay extra extra gold and do the research action in order to do this. So um, Mm -hmm. it we had known that you could do that upgrade when you actually complete a translation, but we hadn't realized on our initial playthrough that you also get that when you simply move the manuscript over. And so that was, I think a pretty big game changer for us. I think that now that I'm thinking about it, I think it's an even bigger game changer than I thought. It it is. It is for several reasons. Because it, it really limits how many times you have to research. I think it also made the game take much longer. Yes, it definitely did. Because it meant the deck wasn't moving exactly. as quickly. So it makes the game take much longer because one, the as we said, the whole pace of the game is set by cards being pulled out of that right. deck. So if we were going really slow at that, that makes sense. And two, um, if we if you get higher up on more of the research tracks, you have a stronger engine. Yeah which is going to you know just just accelerate everything as it, as it does in any yeah. engine building game. So wow. I'm one, when so you played a second time. Yeah. I I did not play a second time and you played with having corrected that rule or did you kind of realize <laughs> we midway realized through? midway through. Okay, but and I know it was a two player game but do you feel like it sped things up? Um because this is important because this is this is going to factor into my scoring of this game. And if I yes, can correct I th- what I think one of my critics it, said, is, I would love to know so that. So it's a little hard to gauge from halfway through, but yes, I, w- I would definitely mm-hmm. say it did speed things up. Awesome. Yeah. 
Um, Did you have other things you wanted to highlight on easy things to miss in the rule book? Yeah. So my one graphic design, I, I can't even call this a question, like a, a, a criticism of the rule book. It was just, you know, maybe something you can easily miss the first time playing. Cause I think it actually is pretty good. looking at the iconography on the back of the book. There were a couple times I remember that we mixed up the icon for moving up on the research track versus activating and gaining the income from your position on the research track. And those are two different things. So I would just, you know, there's, there's a pretty clear like banner symbol with the colors that lets you move up the track. But where it got confusing a little bit was if you see one of the, one of the six physics, mathematics, astronomy, chemistry, philosophy, biology, they each have their own symbol. If you see that symbol by itself, you go up the track. If you see that symbol with a little green hand on it, which is the same hand that they have for gaining a die, um, then you gain the income from your position on that track. So that's just a minor distinction um, that I am pretty sure we probably confused a couple of times. It's not, it's not, as I said, I think it's nearly as big a deal as the one that you just shared. But other than that, as I said, I think that, this was a much easier game to learn than some of the others um, in this series and some other games that we played outside this series. Right. And so, um, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty content. Yeah. I, I don't feel equipped to advise on strategy at this point, having only played it once. But, yeah. Um, I, so yeah, I, I don't I guess another, another strategy I have this kind yeah. of meta as as I said, I wouldn't play this first if you're new to this series. I would say as homework or preparation, I think it'd be very helpful and you would have a very enjoyable, a more enjoyable experience if you come into this having played particularly Paladins or, and Wayfarers. Yeah, yeah, both of them. Yeah. Even just one of them would help. Even one, I think ideally both. And if you're going to throw in a third, Viscounts. Mm, yeah. 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 Um. So I, <laughs> I'm i going to backtrack just a smidge here and say there, I don't have a ton to say on strategy yet because as we have said, we're only a few <clears throat> plays in and this is just a first impressions review. But one thing I do want to highlight is just an engine building component and that is like, the dice you're putting into your bag because every time you are choosing one of your four actions, you have a little deck of cards that you're putting down on your board to place the dice on. And some of those cards, well, all of those cards give you some sort of additional benefit for most of them. It's triggering the, um, the like rest bonus, uh, for one of the six tracks on the on the research in the on the research track tech tree, um, but a few of them give you additional bonuses in terms of gathering more coin or gold or drawing additional dice out of your bag. But those ones that give you additional resources, coin or dice, you're doing that at the cost of drawing an additional white dice 
when you rest at the end yeah. of the round. And so which is a penalty. which is a penalty cuz remember at the end of the game you want as many more colored dice than white. And so mm-hmm. um I think what I would suggest to first time game players is to be- keep that in balance in your head because on the one hand you're really only getting 4 or 2 points for winning that competition for having the fewest white dice. Uh, So it's not a complete deal breaker, but uh, you don't want to overload on them either because then you're going to be going through a lot of your workers to get the colors you need for color matching. So yeah, the issue really is in the end game scoring so much as how much it ruins your your engine, your engine during the exactly. And so I would say for your first turn or two, it could be beneficial to bite the bullet and use those anyway, because you can get rid of some white dice as you go along, but you probably don't want to like do that every time without thinking about it. Yeah. No, like don't rely on those cards as um, an important resource gathering. Tool. Yeah. It is so much better to, have a stronger position on a research track or to have retired translators tucked um, or to, you know, be prominent in the guilds, all these other ways, all of those are so much more beneficial to you than this basic option. I would say that the, the resource bonuses on the cards you can play, it's like the last case scenario. It's the worst case. It's kind of like the equivalent of, um, trashing viking cards at the town center and raiders or if you played circadian's first light cantining um you know like there's some games where they they give you like a fail safe option where you can trash something that you cannot otherwise use um and get you know some resources for it at least but it's always the worst thing you can do and this is this game's version yeah. of that. And it's good to, it's good to contextualize yeah. it that and the way. more you do it, the more you're penalized, yeah. as we've said. But yeah, yes. I think that's the only thing I would so, say. So obviously, we have nothing to say about expansions because this game is brand new. There is no expansion. No. Um, can I be honest? I don't think it needs one. <laughs> I I said this with Wayfarers, but I mean it even more for this now. Um, I and and having played Viscounts and Paladins with the expansions, I think I'm starting. And we can have maybe a discussion episode at some point about this about like when are expansions needed? When are they not? When is it too yeah. much? And when can they actually negatively impact? It's a fair a game? question. And I think that some of these heavier games really don't need it. Yeah, um, so I, I think maybe maybe one will come out as I said with Wayfarers, and I will buy it because I'm a completionist and I will like it. But so man, I've already found like with you, with Paladins and Viscounts, it's made it more difficult for me to want to teach those yeah. games to people. Well, do you know? Because once you've mixed the expansions in, it, it's it's kind of an added barrier to entry on games that are already high barrier to entry. So, I would add one caveat to this. The only, well, this that's putting it too strongly, but one type of expansion I can maybe get behind is something that's just <clears throat> adding variations 
to components that are already in the game rather than like adding completely new tracks or like completely new sources of points. So you just, you just mean like more cards, like more scrolls, more translators. That's fine. Like when I, I I just added gameplay is what I'm. Yeah. It doesn't need that for sure. Not in my, I just want the, the equivalent of more birds and wingspan. That's all I'm looking for. Definitely. Um, so best thing about this game, what, what comes to mind? Oh man. Um, you know, this is, I feel like this is always my role that I play. Um, but I'm always going to shout out the physical presentation, the artwork and the design. They outdid themselves. This, on this. I think this is the best Garfield game in terms of how it looks. The board is fantastic. You, the The board is amazing. It's really I'm pretty sure it's bigger than the Architects and Raiders boards. It might be. If not, it's the same size. Um, it feels bigger though. I don't know why. I think it's um, because it's not like crammed full of things like it's not a like whole the map Wayfarers like one was. There, it's, there's enough room for everything to breathe a little more. Well, Wayfarers has like that long kind of skinny board like Paladins yeah. does. And both of those games, the boards aren't that attractive. Because yeah. um, the Wayfarers one is just like a, a, a journal. Right. Um, but this one, I think also the color, just the amount of gold is really cool. And the bright colors for each tracker and the way that the translators, both how they look and the way they're printed on the board and on the cards, they look really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um this is, I think, the only other one that I think rivals this for presentation is actually Raiders of the North Sea. Um, and again, because I think that the character work with those Vikings yeah. is really, really strong. But some of these translators are really cool. Like the level of detail in some of that um, like Arab-style garb, yeah. those robes, the turbans... Um, it's just it's very different and very interesting. There's lots of like textures and fabrics and yes. really cool um, blues and pinks and golds that just stand out in a really really nice. Can way. I can I um, foot stomp one more yeah. thing on this this <clears throat> point that you brought up, and that is just yeah. one detail that's jumped out to me that kind of exemplifies this level of attention to detail is you've got these different translation rooms at the bottom of the board where the translators can move to and they cost different amounts to go into to hire someone into them between one to three gold. The ones that cost three gold, they're fancier rooms. Like all the rooms are different. The the level, the detail is so good. And also the box itself is, I love the artwork on the box. It's just like, it has so much life to it. It looks like a crowded um, I know it's supposed to be the House of Wisdom, but it almost looks like a crowded um, medieval bizarre. Middle Eastern yeah. market, like a bizarre marketplace. And there's just dozens of characters on it. And each one of them has so much personality. And yeah, it's 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 fantastic. Um, one of the things that I, you know, that kind of made me a little hesitant even before I got Wayfarers, but as I didn't love how it looked as much because... Yeah. I don't think the Miko's style is best suited to landscape, huh. which is most of what that game is. Yeah. 
but this one the character work is just such a big part of the game and the townsfolk in the form of the translators are so much more present than they were in wayfarers where they just exist only to get tucked um and are more like you know pastoral in that game yeah this is this is fantastic and the iconography as i said i don't have the same criticisms i had in wayfarers about them being a little bit too vague or confusing um the rule book is fantastic the color mixing uh yeah this game is awesome so there's, there's, <laughs> there's so many things to praise here i think the first thing i want yeah. to mention is just the high degree of resonance between the theme and the gameplay like you feel Agreed. like you're translating these things especially given mm-hmm. how expensive and hard fought you're usually only translating like between four and six scrolls over the course of an entire game and so you know you're planning this out turns in advance and like the intricacies of that like it feels like that's what you're doing in a way that i think surpasses that experiential element for any of the other garfield games yeah, and that was one thing that we said when we talked about the West Kingdom games last yeah. week was that um maybe with the exception of architects, the other like they're not that thematic. Yeah. And yeah, just this one really just wow, sets the bar very high. Um and the other thing I wanted to highlight here is the uh I think the use of meeples is really creative. <laughs> Just because with a bag building game like this, in a a game as complex as this, short mm-hmm. of that, you could run into major roadblocks where the game would be basically unplayable if you get the wrong dice without some sort of and frustrating some sort of a mechanism like the meeples to change the colors. Like that was a master stroke as well. Yeah. I imagine that I would imagine that was probably a result of playtesting could have been that they figured out that they needed something um yeah and they also and again like it's familiar to people who played paladins yeah. and the way it works yeah which i really like because you know i love i love paladins yeah it's pretty it's pretty cool um, how they have like built like the latest uh entries in their in their uh recipe of games on what came before yes so worst thing about this game yeah i mean the big obvious one is just how long it takes to play but even that has the caveat of like we probably yeah when we probably well we certainly did it wrong and so once you once you correct for that i think that probably uh reigns that in considerably although mm-hmm. even with that even with that i'm struggling a little bit to think that this game would be over in 90 minutes over you mean under 90 yeah minutes. that's over over oh, no, in no, I, 90 minutes oh yeah yeah no i would expect this to be a 90 minute to a two hour yeah. game with two people i think so maybe 90 minutes or a little bit less with two people if you've both played it several right. times and people are moving you know briskly yeah. um i was going to have the same thing as my worst of but one thing I'll, before i pick something else 
one thing I'll say about the um the issue of time and why I think we our, our mistake was such a big deal as well was I was looking at some of the reviews that people typed up on BGG, just the readings yeah. and, and like stuff in the forums. And there, one thing that people kept posting about at some points was, Oh, does it feel like everybody maxes out on every track most of the time? And I was just thinking that didn't happen with us. And it makes sense now why people would be having that experience. Because I think oh, when we yeah. played, each of us maxed out two on like three, two of the yeah, tracks. Usually around two. So I could see why you would, I could see why you'd get close or maybe max out on a couple more. Um, if you moved up even a couple more times in that and had the engine building benefits that is along that the way. is a very interesting uh like added wrinkle i hadn't thought of that yeah and then the other thing is that this game when you're doing the initial setup it gives you two options for how you want to play it the casual game or the epic right. game and we played the casual <laughs> game even that was long <laughs> and it was four hours long <laughs> with three people all of us having playing it for the first yeah. time and now we know having played it wrong in a way that probably had a significant impact on how long it took um so i would be interested to try yeah, it again no doubt with the corrections and also maybe that is why there is an option between the casual and the epic so if the casual gets down to that 90 minute to two hour mark then fantastic i'm good just never playing the epic version i i don't need that in my life um even the best game can overstay its welcome in my eyes um but hey if if you want it it's good to know that it it exists and the game the game gives you that as a legitimate option for how you want to yeah uh i'll be honest i'm was very relieved when i realized we were doing this incorrectly and that it would have Mm -hmm. such an impact on the time because I was very sad when you understandably said this would be a weekends only game because of the length. And so the fact that we could maybe still play it on weeknights sometimes. Well, okay. To be fair, what I said was I wasn't playing it on a weeknight with three people and I certainly wasn't teaching. Yeah. Yeah. But in general, I think that it will be played more often now. And I would also be in the mood to play it or even teach new people this game knowing that i'm not about to condemn somebody to four hours yeah that's a little long of sitting at a table which even i like as much as i love these games board board not board games should not need intermissions yeah no i I know there's some games that are about that life i yeah that's that's a no for me so I'm glad that's why I was I was so glad to hear you explain that yeah. and to ameliorate what I think was my biggest issue with this game. Um as a legitimate actual issue, I don't really have one because as I said, like well, as you said, um even the the random elements of this game with the die rolling and the die pulling out of the bag, there's so many mitigation strategies that even though like you know and and i had this experience when we played like that you can end up in situations where you just keep rolling really badly or you know you spent forever trying to get that nice secondary color die and you just never pull it out the bag that's frustrating but like that's the nature that's the nature of any game where you whether it's any kind of die rolling or bag pulling or even drawing cards from a deck is what it is 
cannot fault the game. Another for that. another way they mitigated it is that there's plenty of spots where when you're acquiring a new dice, you get to pick which primary color it is. And sometimes you get to pick the worker yeah. color too. And so that allows you to mitigate this too because it keeps you from having mm-hmm. all of the same color in your in your bag. And also more often than not, you get to choose at least to an extent which trackers you want to move up yeah, on as well. Exactly. So if you're specializing in, you know, the orange and the blue, so that's chemistry and astronomy, you're not often going to be forced to move up physics if that's not working right. for you. So that's good. Yeah. Cool. Um so final rating? Yeah. So I think I'm going to give this a 9. Because very nice. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And even though that first playthrough took, as we said, four hours, it it felt long, but at no point did I want to stop playing before the game was over. I don't know how you felt, but uh it it kept my attention the entire time. And I've already waxed poetic about like how well the theme fits with the gameplay and um, you know, the translation theme is just such a cool one. Um, Especially on a chapter of history that I think, you know, I'm betraying my uh, Midwestern uh, like high school education, but one that, that I wasn't as familiar with as I am now and uh, really appreciated them highlighting that so um yeah, yeah. big one it, it's so right a big for, for storytelling yeah. and and visual representation because what's cool about it as well is as i mentioned like there's so little like there's basically nothing that remains of baghdad from that time yeah and there's no actual physical evidence of what the house of wisdom actually was or what it looked yeah. like so there's so much creative license that that artists and storytellers can use in, in just using their imaginations to kind of fill in the gaps to the best um, yeah. ability possible, which is really cool. Yeah. How, uh, how are you yeah. feeling rating wise? Oh boy. Um, I'm going to give this a 10. Hey, is that our first 10? There is one other game that we have not reviewed yet that, is a 10 for me. Uh-huh. Um, but this is my first 10 in a review. Wow. That's exciting. We should have. Yeah. Oh man. If I knew this was coming, so, I would have planned confetti or something. <laughs> so I say that again, that is, that is with the assumption that my concerns about the length of this game yeah. have been, ameliorated by the ameliorated that i can rest easy knowing that you know i'm not spending three four hours playing this game and that therefore i can feel more comfortable putting it on the table and introducing it to people and not feeling like it's a punishment um but this is again like the best looking or tied for the best looking garfield game which therefore means that it is very high up in just how I, in like the best looking games that I've seen or that I own. 
because I love the Miko's artwork. Um, and while I said that this is not the easiest of these games to learn by a stretch, and I would not, you know, throw this in front of someone who has never played any of these games. If I was going to pick one of these games that I think is the definitive one that best exemplifies all the different um, creative concepts and, and implementations that Shem and Sam have come up with, this is the yeah. one. Like, this gives you the... You know, the scrolls are like the space cards in Wayfarers. The rondelle of the of the travel action, the map is like moving around the board in Viscounts, and the and the deck of scrolls sets the pace like Viscounts. Yeah. The four actions are also a little bit like like Viscounts. The the way that the dice and the workers work and the rounds is as how it's structured is also like Wayfarers the color matching and the way the workers work is like paladins. The cards in your hand is also like the paladins. Yeah. Um, the tucking of the translators is like, the, like how you treat the townsfolk in wayfarers or the tools and adornments and architects. Yeah. There's just, there's so much like DNA of these earlier games that we already think are excellent. Like games that we have reviewed and given, you know, like what, like 8.5s and 9s across the yeah. board. And this just puts it all into one, albeit a little bit more complicated package, but just a truly fantastic yeah. one. And like at this point, I think if there was, if I could only ever keep or play one of these games ever again, it's going to be this one because this one's going to give you a sweeping experience that will remind you of all the best bits of all the other yeah, games. Yeah, I'm really curious to see what they do with Inventors. Apparently that one's going to be even more complicated. Well, well, well. I'm terrified. Well, well, well. But we're going to get it because you have to, you can't have two or three games in the trilogy. That's just Wait, wrong. is it going to be more complicated? It's, uh, it's complexity yeah. rating on BGG. Well, it hasn't been released yet, but. That's a game that hasn't been released. So yeah. yeah. But I well, I'm I'm saying that because I remember that when they announced the trilogy, so this would have been back in late 2021, they did a live stream on YouTube. You can still go and watch it. It's actually really fun to watch. Okay. Where they like unveil unveiled the theme and the box art and the the names of each game and just kind of gave a sense of each one. Yeah. And they said that inventors would be the most complex, okay. but that it was also, the, but that could change because they also were, were still very early in the stages of developing it yeah. and were trying very different prototypes. So I don't know which of those, if any, actually are going to make its way in. And what they said that was actually um, <laughs> with the chronology that te- of like historically, the events of Scholars actually are first. So that game should have come out first, but they chose to release Wayfarers first because it was the most accessible yeah. of the three, which is saying something given how complex that game is, and that it was a good introduction to a lot of the mechanisms yeah. with the dice. So yeah. one potential tell on the complexity of Inventors is that 
For that one, they do list a playing time of 90 to 120 minutes. Oh, run for the hills. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, block out a full day (laughs) for that first playthrough. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to have to start at like 8 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you know do you, do you know what that makes me think of? It'd be fun to do like a Lord of the Rings trilogy thing for like one of these sets of games just play them back to back to back. You see the differences when you watch a movie. Yeah. The amount of brain work necessary yeah. is significantly less than playing 3 of these. So is that a no? But that said, <laughs> I don't that's that's a as of right now, no. Yeah. But not definitive, no, okay. because we have played Viscounts twice in a row. Uh-huh. So, you know, two to three, who's to say? But maybe it's a, it's a no until we have internalized these games to a point where we're just moving. Like, bam, 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 yeah. bam. Yeah. Yep. Wrap up all three in a combined six to seven hours. I like it. Yeah. Well, uh. Is there, do you have any final words of wisdom or any final uh, observations to? Words of wisdom. I have a whole house of wisdom. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> nope, that's it. Um, I want to play this again very soon. Yeah. So, Same. yeah, let's make that happen. Well, and I guess for now, it's probably going to be a while before we have anything else to say about a Garfield title. Unless we do Circadians. That's true. That's true. But um, yeah, none of well, the certainly trilogy in, Certainly in this series of games. Yeah. Um, because we won't get Scholars until probably about a year from now. Um, but, you know, I'm sure we will mention them as we do, and they'll come up in various rankings and discussions along the way. For so. sure. But yeah, we hope that everybody has enjoyed this and I'm excited to, I feel like we've kind of been on a little bit of a, like side projects for a while between the the Halloween October yeah. marathon and now this Garfield extravaganza pivot. Yeah. So yeah, we'll have a little bit more um, variety in games. Variety yeah. coming soon. But yeah, cool. looking forward to it and so glad that Shem and uh, Sam and the team were able to translate this game so well from uh, conception to realization. No better way to leave it. Bye. Bye.